So let's talk about God. What is God? Where is God? Who is God? And how does God inhabit our stories, our hopes, our fears, our dreams? Where is God taking all of this, if in fact God is taking all of it anywhere at all? This is a series on God. I'm not sure how long it's going to go, but I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to share my own journey of understanding God through stories. I'm going to share some odd but poignant stories found in the bewildering, beguiling scriptures. And I'm going to invite you to bring your stories and enter into it as well. Enjoy. So here we are, God Part 1. And I want to tell you a little bit more about why I'm doing this series. Uh, First of all, I've been wanting to do this series for quite a few months now. And I've even had a couple of false starts. I've written some things down and then I've crumbled up the page. It hasn't felt quite ready yet. And to be honest, I don't think it feels quite ready now. But it's time to share some of these thoughts. And I'm doing this for three primary reasons. And so consider this first part sort of the intro. And we'll get into further, uh, more specific understandings of God. Like we'll look at the Bible, we'll look at Jesus, we'll look at the church. We'll look at other religions. We'll look at all kinds of different things. But today I need to talk about three primary reasons why I feel like this is a really important conversation right now for me, but also probably for you and for the rest of the world. And I'm not starting this conversation. I'm picking up where many, many others have already started it. So first of all, I'm doing this because I'm discovering some new ways that I am longing to understand God. At the age of 46, as a pastor of 22 years, I am running into some ways in which uh, my current understanding of God and how God works isn't quite working for me anymore. So that's a major confession. But even as I say that, I want to say that that's absolutely and utterly normative for someone who's growing. That's been true about me and I would argue about you, my your entire life and my entire life. We create boxes for God and then we allow God to break out of those boxes or we don't. It's up to us. So I'm doing this number one because I'm on a journey of discovering new ways about understanding God. Number two, I'm doing it because lots and lots of people ask me why I use so many Hebrew words in my writing and in my speaking. Why is that such an obsession for me? Is it nerdy? Yes, but there's a bigger reason too. Is it because I've been so influenced by Rabbi Allen? Yes, but there's a bigger reason even than that. So I want to talk about that. And then lastly, I'm doing this because people, I think, desperately need to find a third way of understanding God beyond the binaries. I think if you look at it in terms of a continuum, way on the left is God, all roads lead to the same God and all religions are fundamentally the same. Uh, Jesus uh, wasn't God. He was an interesting teacher if he existed at all. Um, The Bible is interesting, but it's not the authoritative word of God. And 
that's sort of on the far, far left. On the far, far right is God is absolutely in control of this universe. The Bible is absolutely inerrant and authoritative and inspired in every single every single word, and it was dictated to people by God. And if you have questions about it, if things don't make sense about it, if you've noticed discrepancies in it, uh, you just need to ignore that. Um, there is one very singular, narrow way to get to God, and it's through praying a prayer and believing the right things. And that, I think, is the far right pole. And I'm not interested in either one of those. Not surprising. <laughs> I think you probably aren't either. So the third reason I'm doing this series is because I think there's a much more interesting, much more nuanced, mysterious, and actually beautiful third way that transcends both of those, transcends the continuum entirely. So I want to talk about that. So let's dive in. Meister Eckhart, to start there, was a late 13th century, early 14th century theologian, mystic, and he got into some trouble with the church, as most prophets do. The Franciscans didn't really like him. He was brought up on charges of heresy, and those never really materialized before he died in the early 1300s. But in the 19th century, he sort of got really popular. And ever since then, people have been reading him and quoting him. Maybe you've heard Richard Rohr quote Meister Eckhart. He's, if you read the mystics, if you read the, the um, you know, Thomas Merton, uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, really anyone of substance, they're going to be quoting Meister Eckhart. So you've probably heard about him. Well, Meister Eckhart had this, and he was German, and I would say the German phrase, but my pronunciation would be awful. So I'm going to skip it and just go right to the English. He had this phrase that's very interesting to me. And he says, God becomes and God unbecomes. God becomes and God unbecomes, which is... I think is so interesting. Now, a way that John O'Donohue uh, explains, sort of a sort of translates that, is by saying this. And John O'Donohue was the he uh, was a poet, Irish um, Irish poet, theologian, uh, and he said, uh, the, "What what I, Eckhart really means is that God is only our name for what we're trying to understand." And actually, the closer you get to it, the more it ceases to be God. God is only our name for what we're trying to understand. And actually, the closer you get to it, the more it ceases to be God. So here's the question. Why does that bother us so much? Because you got to be honest, right? As you heard that, there was a part of you that went, what? No, that no wonder he was labeled a heretic. Like, that makes no sense. What is the Bible if it isn't an absolute, like, that is God's revealing of who God is. And who is Jesus, if not the very picture of God? Like, God has done so much 
to actually reveal who God is, and we can understand God, and we can name God, and we can get closer to God. And in fact, the closer we get to God, the more we understand God. So I don't get what you mean. And I, I get that all the way down to the ground. But I want to say that we think that way um, because of the time in which we are nested in. And not everybody has always thought that way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture a guess, and I'm going to venture a guess that most of the listeners to this podcast, though certainly not all, but I'm going to say probably most, come from the Protestant tradition. Again, not everybody. Some, some of you listeners uh, are atheists. Uh, some are Jewish, I know that, some are Catholic, some, you know, so lots and lots of different listeners. But I think I'm right, and I think mostly uh, the listeners are Protestant. And you have to understand that one of the things that Luther did in the Reformation in the 1600s was Luther noticed that there was a problem in, in how people related to God. And so uh, he, you know, tacked the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door and started a protest. And what he was protesting basically was a couple of things. Number one, that the priests were the only ones that could sort of mediate God to people. That people weren't supposed to read the Bible for themselves. Um, the people had to go through priests to get to God in terms of confession and um, understanding the Bible and understanding what God meant. And the Pope was the ultimate authority. And again, this is this is just what existed in Christianity. This is the only thing that existed in Christianity, this understanding, Catholicism. Um, when Luther said no, he believed that in the priesthood of all believers, he believed that every single believer in Jesus was a priest and we didn't need to we didn't need mediators. We could have direct access to God, which meant we could confess our sins to God, we could be made right by God without a priest, and we could understand the Bible. We could actually read the Bible for ourselves. And that was his idea of sola scriptura, which he believed that everything we needed to know about God could be found in the Bible. And we didn't need a pope. We didn't need priests, even though the function of pastor and priest, Luther would still say, is very important. We just didn't need them as mediators, as necessary mediators. And so what we found in churches and Protestant churches is the altar where the Eucharist was held was moved from back behind. So like the priest would be in between the people sitting in the pews and the Eucharist. And so the priest would go back, the priest would prepare the Eucharist and then serve it to the people. You see, even, even how that looks is mediation. You need the priest to get to the Eucharist. And then what we found in Protestant churches is that um, many, not all though, it's interesting, uh, that the Eucharist was brought out in between the people and the pastor. So now just that's saying that the people can get to God. They don't, they, they can be helped by the pastor, they can be led by the pastor, but they don't need the pastor. And so that's one one. And I'll get, to, I'll get to the reason why that's important in a second. But the other reason why we think the way we think uh, and why Meister Eckhart's statement bugged us so much, God becomes and God unbecomes, is because right around that time, we also experienced the Enlightenment. And what the Enlightenment brought was some really good uh, understanding of science and reason and even the scientific method. 
And that was a really good movement, just like um, the Protestant Reformation, I think, was a really good movement in time. It was a way of understanding God because we had become stuck. The Enlightenment was a way of understanding um, how the world worked in a non-magical way. Before the Enlightenment, there just was a lot of, you know, sort of funky, archaic, literally medieval ways of understanding if, you know, the God, if, if, if our crops didn't grow is because the gods were angry. If, uh, just go on and on and on. What, what the enlightenment brought us was the age of reason, the age of scientific experimentation, the age of understanding that certain scientific experiments could be proved over and over again. And so reason became much more of the way in which we understand things. And that was a really good move. Now, the issue for us now, 500 years later, is that both of those things, and I'm gonna say this a little, um, like, don't miss it, but each of those things have reached their limit of being completely fruitful. We're not going to throw them out. We're not going to throw reason out. And we're certainly not going to throw Luther's understanding of the priesthood of all believers and the sola scriptura out. They're necessary ingredients in the movement of our understanding with God. But if God is truly infinite, and if human beings continue to evolve in terms of our understanding of each other, our, our understanding of the world, and especially our, our understanding of God, then we will we will inevitably move through new ways of understanding God, each other, and the world. And that's what we saw with the Enlightenment. That's what we saw with the Protestant Reformation. And no one would argue that now, well, almost no one, that those were necessary movements. No one would say that's scary. No one would say that's dangerous. But at the time, both of those things were super dangerous. People were burned at the stake for believing that the world was round, not flat. You know what I'm talking about. So what if we are living in another turning? And this is what Phyllis Tickle wrote about before she died, that about every 500 years, there, 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 there comes a need for a great, she wrote, rummage sale, a great a new understanding where we brought out some of the old used up things and essentially got rid of them. We kept the essential things, but we moved forward in our understanding. Okay, so um, so that's the first reason. I, I do believe we are in a new era. We're about to, we're, we've been experiencing a change. And I'm not the first person to say this, certainly. I'm in fact a little late to the train. Uh, the train has already left the station. But many people say that uh, when you have a new technological development, it's, it's disruptive on every level. So when the printing press happened, huge gifts, but again, it was majorly disruptive. Uh, when people could read the Bible for themselves and many other things for themselves, it was disruptive. And you know, think about it for a second, the major disruption of our time is arguably obviously the internet and the way that that has connected uh, us all globally the way in we the way in which we now receive information i mean remember not too long ago in fact in my lifetime i'm only 46 in my lifetime 
The news happened through newspapers, magazines, and the morning news and the evening news. That's how you got your news. That's all. Those contained things. And magazines, they came out once a week or maybe once a month, and you read the news in them. You read the newspaper every morning because how else are you going to get the news? You got uh, the news uh, on TV when TV came out and because how else are you going to get the news? You know, but now Twitter, Facebook, websites, the news comes at us every second and the news cycle is not one day or one week. It's literally never stopping. There's something new to find out every second. Every time you refresh your browser, there's something else to read. And there's a way in which I think human beings are on absolutely information overload. Uh, and we don't know how to amass all of this information. And if we're trying to understand God that way, there's a way in which we are going to fail. <laughs> so number one, there, it, the reason why it's important to talk about this is I believe we are on the verge of understanding brand new things about God, about the church, about the world. And I believe that that has been a, 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 a cycling, um, repetitive thing that happens, you know, again, every 500 years or so. So the second reason why I want to talk about this and why I think this is super important is because, um, and it's a little personal, but I think there's something very helpful for all of us here. So the question is, why do I use so many Hebrew words? Like, why am I so, you know, like both of my books, Beginnings and then my book Whole, which is coming out in August, both of them are deeply, deeply um, rich in terms of the Hebrew language and the many meanings that we can find from the Hebrew language. And why, why that has become so fascinating to me, number one really is because I've spent so much time with Rabbi Allen, who our beloved, this good word guru, but there's a bigger reason too. So in my tradition, which I think, you know, evangelical Christianity, which that's my tribe. And that's why I'm probably the most critical about it because I'm inside of it. My tradition has um, seemed to uh, believe that unity is equal with uniformity of thought. Like there is one way of understanding difficult patches, passages of scripture. If we just study it enough, if we find a systematic way of understanding the difficult passages in, in the scripture, we will come up with what it means. And if you believe that in uniformity, then you can be part of the tribe. I, I know that's a little overly simplistic, but if you resonated with that, if you shook your, if you nodded your head and you're like, yes, that's exactly how I grew up. I grew up believing you had to interpret the Bible in one way. And when I listened to sermons, the, the thing that, that came over and over and over again was this sort of understanding that maybe no one said out loud, but it was so implicit, is that there is one way of understanding scripture. You understand what the author was trying to say you first in, in its context, and then you apply it to current day. And if you do that right, if you break down all the words and get all the context right, if you study it enough and pray enough, you can get the one answer. And there was a long time where I really believed that was true. 
honestly, and it didn't bother me. But now it really does bother me, actually, because I find it to be so limiting. I don't believe you have to believe that every passage means the exact same thing for all people across all time. That doesn't make any sense to me now. And so I've found great freedom and joy and expansiveness in the Jewish tradition of understanding scripture. Now, lest you think the Jewish folks, our Jewish friends, our Jewish brothers and sisters, have a kind of um, you know cavalier attitude toward interpreting the scriptures, ahem, they're the ones that have done the most work about interpretation. They're the ones that hold Torah and the scriptures, I would argue, the most sacred. Um, and, you know, if you don't agree with me on that, I'm totally fine with that. But they also believe in the Jewish tradition, it was thought to be an act of worship to see all the different ways the Bible could speak to us now and now and now. Uh, the Midrash and the Mishnah and the Talmud are actually um, part of the scripture tradition. And they're mainly rabbis having different interpretations, arguing with one another, they would say, for the sake of heaven, so that we can experience more of God, more of ourselves, and it doesn't have to be interpreted the exact same way. They believe the Bible was like a diamond, and if you turned it in the sun, you would get a different refracted angle. And there was, you know, 70 ways, but they would say 70 times seven. I mean, they would say there was almost limitless ways. And so I have just found great freedom in playing in that playground. And maybe it's because it's not the, the tradition I grew up in. You know, maybe if you grew up Jewish, maybe you're finding lots of freedom in the Christian understanding of how Christians understand scriptures. And I think that's part of how it works. Like you got to play in some different playgrounds to figure out, you know, where is God and what is God? And, and um, but even as I say that, I know that maybe some of you like eyebrows raised and you say, wait a minute, isn't that dangerous? Isn't it dangerous to start playing in other playgrounds? What if you start to think something that isn't really grounded in what's really good and true? Well, and I just want to say, okay, like there is truth and there is goodness and there is untruth and there is falsehoods. There really is. So, you know, the far left might say, no, it's all the same. All, all the roads lead to the same place. Um, you know, every single thing has truth in it. And I wouldn't agree with that, actually. I mean, my experience is that, no, some things are absolutely not good, not true, not helpful. And some things are really true and really good and really helpful. But I happen to have a core conviction that if it's true, it's from God. If it's true, it's from God that all truth is God's truth. Unless you think that's some crazy radical thought, I learned that at Wheaton College, the bastion of evangelical conservatism, <laughs> Whereas, which is where I went to grad school. So, and I do not believe that Christianity, for example, is the exclusive holder of truth. I just don't believe that. 
You can argue with me there. I don't believe Judaism is the exclusive um, owner of truth. God is truth. God is where it uh, originates from. And God cannot be contained in any one religion. God cannot be contained in any one religion. Now that might raise some eyebrows. And again, I am not saying all roads lead to the same place. I do not think that they do. On the other hand, to say that there's no truth in the other world religions, no matter what religion you're in, is just like, like stop and, and think how unbelievably arrogant that sounds. That really, that there's, there's no truth in the other religion, none. It's completely wrong, completely false, which doesn't mean all roads lead to the same place. I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying all religions are the same. Obviously and certainly they're not. And I am distinctively Christian, that, that I, I place my trust in God through the person of Jesus. And it's a mystery, and I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that much more later, um, later on in the series. So the reason why I, so for example, my first book, Beginnings, I looked at the seven days of creation, not as a uh, period in history to argue about whether or not it happened in six 24-hour periods or not. I find that so boring and uninteresting. Where I went with the seven days of creation is I saw them as a way for us, for us to enter into the great big story of the unending creation of God, which began in a moment, but which has never stopped create. God has never stopped creating. God has never stopped uh, initiating God's good work in the world. And when we read the seven days of creation, there's many ways of reading it, but the way that I'm choosing to read it as a, is as a way of seeing it as a pattern for how all beginnings happen. So on day one, we read that there's tohu vavohu, this Hebrew phrase that means chaos, darkness, this great energy that existed before any order happened, before any creation happened. And into that tohu vavohu, God said, let there be light. And that's mysterious because it wasn't the sun. The sun wasn't created until day four. And so the great discussion you can have, which has limitless answers, is what does it mean that light comes into the tohu vavohu, right? So where I go is like, as I ask the question, where is there tohu vavohu in your life? Where is there confusion, darkness, energy that doesn't seem to be going anywhere? Maybe you got the cancer diagnosis. Uh, maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe something that you thought was going to be there for the rest of your life was suddenly taken away from you. Maybe you reached the top of the thing that you were, you climbed the mountain and you got to the summit. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was having kids. And then when you got to the top, you found out that it wasn't satisfying or as satisfying as you thought it would be. You have, and, and now you find yourself in this sort of bewildering, uh, despair because what you worked so hard for for so long now feels empty. That's tohu vavohu. And we're looking for, and there's a sense of blindness in that. 
there's a sense of you can't see anymore when you're in that kind of place. And so you need God to, to generate some beginning. And that's what the light of day one is, right? And so um, I go through every single day of creation as a way to understand where we are, where we are in the story of God. And that's going to change over time for you, that you're going to have new understandings of where you are. You're not going to stay in the same place. You're a verb, not a noun. And so that's a very delicious, imaginative, well, it's delicious to me. <laughs> not sure if it is for you, but it's an imaginative way of understanding and diving into the scriptures in a way that isn't so systematic, that isn't so like, let's break down all, you know, the whole into their component parts so that we can understand exactly the way it works. Now, I'm more interested in understanding, like, where are we going? And I believe that God is always at work, always making all things new. God starts things and then invites us into it to finish them. And that's mysterious. And we don't totally know how that works. And we don't completely know where we are in that process. And we are led to new places without knowing where they're going to end up. And we say yes to God without knowing how it's how it's going to go. We may die. We may flourish. We don't know. But that is a sense of mystery, right? So uh, that's a very brief look at why I'm fascinated with the Hebrew language and even the Jewish way of understanding scriptures. So the last thing I want to talk about in the intro here is this middle way of understanding God. Again, if it's a continuum way on the left is God is, you know, just out there. The Bible is only a book. Miracles really never happened. Everything is all the same. All roads lead to the same place. If that's the far left, and then you have all kinds of beliefs, you know, in, in, in the middle, then we look at the far right, that God is ultimately in control of every single thing that happens. God allows everything that happens. God permits everything that happens. God causes everything that happens. And the Bible is inerrant. It's, there is no mistakes in it. There are no discrepancies in it. And if there seem to be, it's just because we don't understand them. God's ways are not our ways. Miracles are absolutely and utterly true. Every single thing in the Bible is written literally to be understood literally. Um, when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, that means that you need to say a prayer and believe the right things. And that means you're going to heaven when you die. That's the far right. You can tell what I grew up in probably just by the passion and energy with which I explain those two things. <laughs> so what I'm interested in these days is saying, I actually don't want to find myself on that continuum at all. I want to find a new continuum. I want to find a new understanding because I believe that just, you know, I, there, there just is a different way of understanding that. So let's go right to the passage right to the passage that says, I am the way, that where Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life, right? What does that mean? So if you're on the way left on the continuum I described otherwise, you're gonna say, I don't know what that means. That's a ridiculous metaphor. It seems really, really exclusive. And Jesus in other ways and other times has seemed really inclusive. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't, he, he certainly isn't saying that there is some rigid way to God because that's not you know, Jesus in every other area of his life. He was expansive. This seems so contractive and so small. Uh, and so we're going to, you know, if, if for no other reason, we're going to reject that because it just doesn't, it doesn't sound like Jesus 
And the no one gets to the five, the three, me. Nah, we don't, we don't get that. No way. So, uh, but on the far right, uh, again, I'm the way, the truth and life. No one gets to the five, the three, me. That is the litmus test. That is the absolute and utter, uh, you know, grounding statement that, Christians say this is what it means. You, you, like it's in the Bible. You can't argue with it. Jesus says himself, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. That is so unbelievably clear. And, you know, as you heard me describe those two things, there's probably one, one of the polls that you agreed with more. But I, I hope you can sense that... Um, while there might be nuggets of truth in both, we can do better. We can do better than that. So you got to look at the context. And right before he says that, Jesus says this interesting phrase. He's talking to his, his disciples. He's trying to tell them that he's leaving them, that he's going to get killed and he's going to leave them. But he's trying to explain something to them that you got to understand like they would have ab absolutely no frame of reference for understanding. And so in their lives, they were going to experience a massive disruption and massive shift. And Jesus was in how they understand God, how they understand the world and how they understand each other. And Jesus was trying to give voice to it. He was trying to give understanding to it. Now remember, Jesus was Jewish and these disciples were Jewish. And that's how they understood life. They knew the Torah. They went to synagogue on Saturdays. They followed the teachings. They followed Torah. They followed the dietary laws. They celebrated Passover together. They celebrated Pentecost together, the Jewish holiday, which existed before the Acts 2 Pentecost. Uh, they did Sabbath together. I mean, all these things that they did, this is how they understood God. They knew the Ten Commandments. They followed the Ten Commandments. Jesus did too. And so Jesus is, has been in the middle of trying to help them understand there is a new and surprising way, surprising twist that this story is going. Now, they believed that a Messiah was coming. They hoped that, that a Messiah was coming. But what they believed about that was that there was going to be a new king that would be a lot like David that would actually sit on an actual throne and bring unity back to the tribes of Israel, that, that they would reestablish the glory days of when David was king and there was unity. And you look back on that and, you know, if you read it, especially in First and Second Chronicles, you realize how utterly, you know, and uh, uh, the kings, First and Second Kings, you realize how, how, you know, it really wasn't the glory days. I mean, there was just a lot of messed up stuff in there. But David did unite the tribes. And so they were ready for a Messiah that was going to uh, throw off of the yoke of Rome, which needed to happen, and they were going to establish a new, um, they were going to establish a renewed sense of Jewish community in God, in Jerusalem. That's what they understood the Messiah was going to do, and that's who they thought Jesus was, okay? So Jesus was trying to get them to understand that he was going to die, and this was going to be rough for them because they had no frame of reference for um, a a Messiah that would rise again and ascend to the Father. That comes so naturally to us that we don't even wonder why that would have been a beguiling truth. But Jesus, in, in, in the beginning of that chapter, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, you're, you're trusting God now. That's so interesting. You're trusting God now. But then he says, 
Now trust me. You're trusting God now. That's what you have been in. That's the, that's the way that you've always understood it. And now I'm going to say, in the same way that you trusted God, trust me. Now again, even though they saw him as the Messiah, they, they didn't see him as God. And Jesus was inviting them into a radically new way of understanding. And so then he goes into this thing. He says, um, in my father's house are many rooms. And I'm going there to prepare a room for you. And I'll come back again and I'll bring you to that place. And, you know, so we've interpreted that in, in heaven. There's all these mansions and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And God's preparing a mansion just for us with our name on it. But really the understanding in the, in the first century of how families lived is there was a uh, there was a ground floor and that's where grandma and grandpa lived. And then you would build another floor on top. You would go straight up. And that would be where, um, you know, the first son lived with his wife and his family. And then when they had kids and they got married, they would build another room on top. So you understand like like the the apartments would just keep stacking on top of each other. There, there would be another room and another room and another room. So growing families were always expanding their house. So Jesus was simply saying, listen, you're in the family. This is a family. And I am simply preparing another room for you. Like I'm the son. And there was a room prepared for me. And you're, in a sense, children. And I'm preparing a room for you. So there was, there was, then that would have been mind-blowing, utterly totally crazy, mind-blowing, which is why Thomas says in the very next verse, no way. Jesus, we don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're talking about. So this is the context. And that's when Jesus says, listen, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. But then he says, if you had known who I am, then, we, then you would have known who my father is. But from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And so instead of giving them like this prayer to pray or this orthodox thing to believe, he's, he's saying you already are in relationship with God because you're in relationship with me. You're already there. You've already been walking the path. All the things you've been learning from me, all the ways we've been hanging out with each other, all the intimate conversations that we've had, all the ways in which you've seen God work through your own hands and through my hands, us being together is you seeing God. And that would have been massive, crazy, unbelievable, mind-blowing. You see what I'm saying? So that's so much bigger than all you got to do is pray a prayer that you're a sinner. Jesus forgave you of your sins. And if you believe that, you can go to heaven when you die. And that's what that verse means. Now, I'm not arguing that that is true. Yeah. What I'm saying is that such a truncated, such a limited, such a small way of understanding God and Jesus. So when you understand all the different kinds of people that it would have been true, 
that Jesus could have said, if you had known who I am, then you would have known who my father is. But from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So he's talking to prostitutes with whom he has hung out with. He's talking to Samaritans with whom he has hung out. He's talking to Matthew, the tax collector with whom he hung out. He's talking to Ju- Judas, the, um, the, the uh, zealot uh, with whom he hung out. He's saying to all these people, including Pharisees, you have come to know the Father because you have come to know me. In that way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the surprising paradox of God made flesh. And I haven't come to dispose of, remember Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. I haven't come to erase one, um, one idea that you, that, that you found in Torah. I have come to fulfill it, which means I have come, uh, you know, and I, you know, I say, which means I don't totally even know what that means, except to say there is a different way of understanding God. There was back in the time of Jesus. And there is now versus the way left pole and the way right pole. So here's what I would leave you with in terms of understanding God. What would it mean for you to say? that there is simply more. There's more to understand about God. There's more to experience in God. There's more truth to learn about God. And the ways in which I have experienced God in the past are all good. Some of those things are things to be treasured and kept, but some of those things are old and used up and they and you actually need to transcend those things and you need to come to a different way of understanding God that uh, is equal to the level of understanding that you currently have about life, self. And if we say we understand ourselves more and more, why wouldn't we say the same thing about God? Why would we think that the way faith works is to find one way of believing God, um, one way of understanding the scriptures and just stick to that for the rest of our lives? that way of thinking is what I describe as the house of cards theory, that you're afraid that if you pull one, if you pull one card out, the whole thing's going to collapse. Friends, it's not a house of cards. God is much bigger than that. God is God and we aren't. We're understanding God more and more, but we'll never fully understand God. God in God's grace moves toward us in some intimate way. And I think that is the ultimate story of Jesus. And then when we see Jesus on the cross, we see God demonstrating God's love and God's with us-ness in such a crazy, crazy, crazy way. Uh, so anyway, gang, this is just the beginning. And this is just the start of a conversation. I hope this leads you to talk with your loved ones about what you agreed with, what you disagreed with what felt dangerous, what felt exciting, what felt hopeful. And we will talk more next week. So friends, we are dust and breath. We are human and holy. We are limited and limitless, and we are in it together. See you next week. Well, thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Weens, on Facebook at Steve Weens Author. 
on Instagram at Steve Weens, and you can check out my website, steveweens.com, for show notes, uh, blogs, and all kinds of fun stuff. And also, please visit me on patreon.com slash thisgoodword and consider supporting the good work. There's lots of fun freebies for those that do. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Ween's Author, Twitter at Steve Ween's, and Instagram at Steve Ween's. And you can find all my work, all my books, show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash this good word. The truth was you knew you were losing that fight in your suburban back.